Hong Kong is on the brink. Injuries, there were arrests. Beijing has described the pro-democracy protests as, quote, conduct close to terrorism. The central government would not sit on its hands and watch. Demonstrators have been taken to the streets with no signs of protests coming to a halt. It's a smaller group of people, but very intense. The violence is being ratcheted up. But protesters say it's all too little, too late. This uproar has resurrected long-standing conflicts between Hong Kong and China. Could Hong Kong be headed toward another Tiananmen Square? In this new podcast, we follow what's happening on the ground in Hong Kong and talk to experts who are looking ahead to what will happen next. I'm Andrew Schwartz with Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies here at CSIS. This is Hong Kong on the Brink. Welcome to Hong Kong on the Brink. I'm Jude Blanchett, and today I'm joined by Professor Victoria Hui, an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. In today's episode, Professor Hoy draws on her academic work on global protest movements to explore the forces that are shaping Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement. We also discuss the causes and consequences of the cycle of violence between protesters and the Hong Kong police. Victoria, well, we're really thrilled to have you on today. And I want to start out by asking, you know, not only are you from Hong Kong, you did your, your undergraduate education there, but I think more importantly for our conversation today, as a political scientist, you've been actually studying the dynamics of global revolutions. You've been studying the dynamics of how nonviolent protests work, how certain tactics that protesters adopt are more or less effective. So with your political science hat on, I wanted to ask you as an observer of events uh, since June, what are you seeing that may be interesting for us to understand? And how are you seeing the relevance of your political science work bearing out here in Hong Kong? Yeah, so thank you so much for having me first. Growing up in Hong Kong and also every time they go back to Hong Kong is always a place that's very safe. And then we also presume the rule of law. We would presume that the, the police should be impartial. Civil servants were also impartial and just doing the job upholding the professionalism. So what is really scary is that I have been spending essentially 15 years or so teaching courses on contention both in China and in the rest of the world. When it comes to contention in China, we repeatedly see protests escalating into violence and also um, taking up more and more disruptive uh, action. And then very often that people will break into the offices of, for example, local party cadres and drag them out and beat them up. And then when it comes to the rest of the world, essentially it's very easy. Almost every single revolution, armed revolution, escalates and and it, it uh, escalates from originally very peaceful protest but then because they get gunned down they get arrested and then people get really upset and so um you see radicalization escalation very very relatively quickly over time but not as quickly as the case of Hong Kong in the last few months so it's like it's really scary it's very nerve-wracking for me just analyzing what's been going on can you talk a little bit about the dynamics of radicalization? Um, one of the features of this movement is we've seen it act relatively leaderless compared to, let's say, the 2014 umbrella protests. And, and there has been a, a belief that because there's been no central leader that's allowed for more radical factions within the protest movement to really be determining the, the, the pace 
and perception of the movement. Can you just talk a little bit about how the radicalization actually has functioned on the ground? What's, what's been driving it? Yeah, so when it comes to radicalization escalation, very often that you really need to avoid that in order for uh, a movement to maintain nonviolence discipline. It is quite necessary to have reasonably strong leadership and also very good organization and very good planning and goals. Now, the protesters this time, they learn a few lessons from the umbrella movement. They learn that nonviolence didn't work. It failed. The umbrella movement was very peaceful, but it failed. So it didn't work. And this is also why the, a, a few months later, after the umbrella movement in February 2015, that there was the fishbowl revolution in Mong Kok where protesters were, pick, were already digging up bricks to throw at the police. And um, Edward Learn, who is now in jail because he was involved in that. Yeah, another reason is that People really need to have the kind of training. So when you look at Gandhi, for example, why Gandhi advocated nonviolence, but yet actually we often think of India as this pure example of nonviolence, but it is not. For Gandhi's followers, his core followers, they were trained by him that you should never fight back even when you are hit, even when you're injured, even when you're beating to have bloody face when you have broken bones. Except that when it came to the rest of the population, that just didn't work. So even in a case that's often put up as the stereotype, the model case of nonviolence, there was quite a bit of violence even in that case, precisely because it's so hard everywhere to maintain nonviolence discipline. When you're hit, when the police beat you up, the natural instinct is to fight back. And then if this gets worse, then the whole, then essentially we'll just see as a vicious cycle of more police violence and then protesters also responding with more violence. This is kind of what we're seeing also in Hong Kong. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, violence may or may not help a protest movement move towards its final goals? Uh, in the case of what we're seeing transpiring in Hong Kong, I remember, you know, early on when there was the storming of the airport and the detention of the Global Times propaganda worker, the next day, the narrative was that the protesters had lost a little bit of the moral momentum because events had gotten out of control. And remember, there's that photo of those two female protesters holding up a sign saying, essentially, you know, we know we screwed up, but we're, we're desperate. There seemed to be at that moment an attempt to try to maintain the narrative of peaceful protests because it was understood that this was a perception issue in many ways, and they were trying to have the moral high ground. Has that essentially eroded because, as you were saying, we've reached the limitations of what the, the large peaceful protests are able to do? And so is this a conscious direction change, or is this just an inevitable deterioration of discipline that typically occurs? I would not say that this is inevitable, but it is very common descent into to, to violence. So what happened to, on July 1st was that the protesters storming to the electrical building. I watched the whole thing unfold and I was very worried that and at the same time, I think a lot of people, a lot of the moderates in Hong Kong were also very worried because some of the pro-democracy legislators were literally begging the protesters not to do that. But the young people didn't really want to listen. 
Now, the interesting thing is that you also mentioned that after the saga at the uh, airport on August 13, the next day overnight, they then some of the people came out and decided to come out and apologize. So in a way that this movement, some people say that it is not exactly leaderless, that maybe it is leaderful, that everyone involved is a leader. But the problem is that is the coordination, even though there's some coordination, for example, we see the citizens' press conference always coming out to, to reshape the narrative. But the problem is, as you said, um, violence really has uh, can backfire. What happens is that violence, so violence always backfires, but it backfires more on the side that wills it more. So what we're seeing is that protesters are kind of correct in saying that Hong Kong people are behind us. Because even after the, you know, repeat escalation in July and August, on August 18, so 1.7 million people or maybe less, but you know, all the streets were filled and then people were standing in the rain with their feet completely soaked in the rain for hours. And so it's really a good sign that the moderates of Hong Kong population were still behind them. And then another thing I can also say is that my sister, she did not support the umbrella movement in 2014. And she also was always very reluctant to even, you know, vote for anyone. But somehow that in August, she changed her mind and she began to talk to me like, you know, I understand why the protesters are escalating the actions because, you know, the government has refused to heed um, all these multiple peaceful marches. So what do you expect the young people to do? And so what we've been seeing is that because the police have used a lot more violence, a lot more brutality. I still remember that um, early on, there were people discussing on Listserv, well, what are you talking about police brutality? That there's been no um, torture in police station. But now these days, police torture of protesters or even passersby have become so routine. And so this is why that a lot of the moderates are understanding of the violence. But at the same time, we also see that Beijing has been really shaping the narrative that, you know, we're talking about chaos, riots, and also with elements of terrorism. So with more escalation, especially after uh, October 1st, um, when the more petrol bombs and, and then also over the last weekend, a young person, 19 year old, was also using a cutting knife to, to attack a police officer. And then also we don't really know who placed the, um, IED improv- improvised explosive device. And so with more and more escalation, there is some chance that, you know, because the protesters are also wielding much more violence that it can also backfire on them. I want to stay in the violence issue for for a bit because it's so important to this. And I want to talk in a minute about the narrative and framing of it because both sides are essentially trying to claim the the moral high ground here. But in terms of tactics and in terms of an escalating spiral that we seem to be on, I guess the two two questions. The the first is, and again, I I want to put aside for a moment police aggression. So for now, just focusing on the issue of what some of the protesters are doing. Mm-hmm. Do you think it comes to a point where that broader popular support that you mentioned with your sister, that the protesters have now versus 2014, when do they start to really lose a lot of those gains uh, of popular support? You know, we're looking at now Hong Kong entering into a recession. You've seen uh, levels of economic instability, which will be impacting 
normal life in Hong Kong, which it's been to some extent isolated from up until recently, does that begin driving a wedge between the protesters and the Hong Kong people, again, which is precisely what Beijing's playbook is at this point? Yes. But what is also interesting is that so for all these years that because um, early on when I, for several years after I graduated from college, I was working with the then Hong Kong Democratic Party, uh, the United Democrats of Hong Kong, which later became the Democratic Party of Hong Kong. At the time, uh, in the early 1990s, I was distributing pamphlets and just standing in the street. You know, people would not take flyers from you. People, I mean, if they didn't spit on your face, <laughs> I was thinking that I would be <laughs> lucky. And so Hong Kong people, in, we have this perception that Hong Kong people really love stability, love making money, and they care about the jobs. They care about all the business opportunities. A lot of the, those ideas are still correct. And then another thing I was also thinking is that, so also, you think of Gandhi's idea of nonviolence is he doesn't sit back and do nothing or just, you know, um, do meditation and do not go do anything. He made a point of provoking the, the regime to challenging the regime about all of those unjust laws. So this, his famous salt march was because, you know, salt at the time was taxed by the, the um, colonial power. And then Gandhi's point was salt is given by nature. Why should we pay taxes on salt? And so he was provoking them to arrest him. And essentially, when you try to even have a successful nonviolence movement, you really kind of you have to provoke a lot of the uh, responses. And at the same time, that inevitably would then create a lot of uh, disorder and instability. What has surprised me over the last few months is not just the very rapid descent into um, escalation and, and radicalization, but also Hong Kong people's drastically increasing tolerance of instability and disruptions. And so, again, this goes back to the extent of police brutality and also the government's um, continual refusal to hold, to open independence investigation into police abuses and maybe even protesters' abuses. And that has kind of like really driven a lot of the even moderates to the side and of the protesters. And so the narrative there is, in a way, it's not just um, whether violence backfires, it's, it is that the side that was more violence gets actually more by fire. So turning to, you know, looking at the issue of, of, of police violence, where does it stand right now in terms of the conversation that's happening on the ground with police officers? I mean, it seems to me that just looking at this objectively, the police are being asked to play a political role when, they, when that's not their, their primary function. How do you look at the issue of tolerable police reaction to protesters? And to what extent do you think that the police have become unmoored from acceptable levels of, of reaction and violence? Yeah, so the, I think the big contrast is that in the umbrella movement, there were already several cases of police beating up people in the shadow. And then that happened. That beating also was um, filmed by, I think, TVB at the time. And and those um, police officers were actually later charged and they were also sentenced to jail. And then uh, at the end of the um, Occupy movement, a lot of the leaders, they stayed on the ground and they were arrested. And so even the Occupy leaders, they voluntarily handed themselves to the police station. 
At the time, no one would have imagined that if you are arrested, that you would be denied access to lawyers, your family members, and then you can get tortured in in um, detention centers. So what happens today is, in a way, it is also for, for a lot of the moderates in Hong Kong, because they see this, they go down to the streets, they see this every single, almost every single day, is that... Um, even really in plain view, the police are beating people up and breaking the bones and then smash the, smash the face and then also push the wounds against the grounds and then also directly um, sp- uh, a shot pepper spray on the wounds. When passers-by watch a lot of these things and then also there are a lot of people who've been arrested who are very clearly not um, protesters. For example, just over the weekend that a doctor was arrested and then he wasn't doing anything and then he was arrested. And a lot of people get really upset about it. And at the same time, also what I've been also I've been thinking, you know, if I want to convince the protesters that there are other viable non-violent methods, but then we can think of uh, think of basically a lot of the things that people have been doing. They set up linen walls with these uh, sticky nooks and just, you know, this is a very peaceful way that so you just use sticky, sticky nooks. But then around a lot of these linen walls that there have been thugs attacking people with knives and these linen walls have been destroyed many times. And then people have also formed human chains. And then sometimes when you form human chains and people sing songs and people um, still, some of these uh, people have been attacked. And then now that there's a mask ban, so you can even put on a mask and people were also putting slogans, sometimes putting slogans on on the mask. And then they put up a statue of the female uh, Hong Kong Statue of Liberty and they took it to the top of the Lion Rock uh, Mountain and then the next day it was destroyed. And then when we look at other cases, whether it is India or South Africa, very often the most effective form of nonviolence actions are targeted boycotts and also general strikes. But in Hong Kong, in a way that, you know, how do you even make targeted boycott effective when China controls a lot of the businesses and they can make it, still continue to make money? I would say that in Hong Kong with the targeted boycotts, the one thing that could, that could achieve is that you can have pro-democracy customers just helping pro-democracy little joints, mom and pop shops, and also connecting the little shop owners with the young people and so that they can sustain themselves. But a lot of these methods people have uh, tried. And so in a way that also on, Ju- on July 1st, when there was this one of the slogans, spray painted on on one of the pillars is you who has taught us that nonviolent protests don't work. That kind of surprisingly has resonated with a lot of people. But then at the same time, I also believe that the, the tolerance, the popular tolerance for the escalation, really there's a certain limit that eventually, you know, when it comes to just beginning to use IEDs and also um, attacking police officer with a cutter, I think that may actually really go beyond what people can tolerate. Yeah, and so the the idea that I think you're putting very articulately is if legitimate means of more peaceful protest are cut off and at the same time, if protesters feel like what means they do have for peaceful protest are not um, having any impact, then naturally and inevitably we'll see them possibly drift towards more extreme measures as a way of 
possibly changing the status quo. Yeah, so this is essentially how we understand processes of escalation and radicalization across all the cases. And then sometimes, very often in, in these other cases, that they will escalate to armed struggle. So Nelson Mandela, after the Sharpeville massacre in 1961-62, um, then he, Nelson Mandela went underground because the ANC was banned, unions were banned, and all the legal channels were all, all basically were all shut off. And so he went underground, went into hiding, and, and announced that, you know, nonviolence has failed us, that with this regime, there isn't anything we can do. We have, then he decided to form the MK, the, uh, the military wing. And for that, he was sentenced to life. Um, but in Hong Kong, the state's capacity is very high. There's really, you know, if you want to form an armed struggle, that there is no, there's no jungle, there's nowhere to hide. So then the only thing that people could do is this kind of just basically very um, improvised kind of collective violence. Also, the Hong Kong is, and it's also different in that some other cases is that it's very small. And so also there may be certain limits to how much people can really tolerate in just, you know, directly attacking the police. But at the same time, also, it is very important that the police have to understand with all the things that they have done and they don't, they are not accountable. So they are dressed like protesters. They're not dressing very often. They're not dressed in the uniforms or even when they're dressed in the uniforms, they do not show their IDs. When they banned uh, protesters from wearing any masks, they themselves are, are all masked all the time. Um, sometimes not, but a lot of them are. And so why there's such wide discrepancy? So whenever a police officer is attacked, an arrest is made almost immediately. But several times the people are shot in the eye, for example, that you really do not see any arrest. And why? And this is why people are really asking a lot of these questions. I want to shift gears for a minute and talk about actions here in the United States and in Washington, D.C. But, but before I do... Can you give us your assessment of where do the protesters stand as of today in terms of what it would take for them to feel like they're gaining traction? It seems that we've reached essentially a stalemate on on both sides. And unfortunately, that stalemate seems to be one where we're, as we've been discussing so far, we're in this escalating cycle of, of violence. I understand from Beijing's point what they'd like to see the they, they'd like to see happen, right? They want to see this go away, and then they immediately will turn towards making sure this never happens again, in terms of ramping up repression. What are the protesters? And again, I realize this is a difficult question because we don't have a singular consensus here, but what do the protesters hope to achieve as of today, moving forward? What do they think is a realistic? win or victory, what does it look like and, and where might we see the, the, the protests move or morph into if they start to see some concessions from the Hong Kong government? Yeah, so then my, so going back to our early, to, to, let me relate this to an earlier question is that what does, um, Carrie Lam and also Beijing want to achieve? My worry is that also that this escalated violence is really playing into Beijing's hand because they, for, for months that they were calling this riots, um, also with elements of terrorism. And early on, no one believed them. But then now they may actually be succeeding in just creating chaos. And also, you know, now with new attacks and with IED. And my worry is that they, the regime actually understood that the mask ban was going to backfire very badly. 
because how would they not know because um that you know if you kind you you stop issuing the police stop issuing the no objection permit then people are still going to protest and then um you can then stop them and you can use crowd control weapons against them and then because it's been going on so for Beijing, quite a while. Yes. In a sense, Beijing was was actively looking for an escalation because it would play into a narrative of increasing chaos and instability driven by rioting protesters. This is what I'm afraid of. And in fact, I think, you know, a lot of people have been arguing that the protesters turn to violence is just really playing into the regime's hand. And then, so also that remember on uh, the day before September 11, China Daily said, said that Hong Kong protesters were planning terrorist attacks and protesters were like, oh, well, we just go home to sleep. And so a lot of those um, uh, talks about terrorism, elements of terrorism and riots actually didn't really resonate with Hong Kong people or I suppose even the rest of the world. But then they may, but with the, so when they were expecting October 1st, more protests on October 1st on China's National Day, the night before apparently that the police relaxed the, the rules for using live ammunition. And so the next day on October 1st, a young person was shot on the left chest. And that got people very, very angry. And that basically really marked another milestone in the escalation of violence. And so we are seeing a lot more since October 1st. And then another kid was also shot in the lake uh, a few days later. And so now with more escalation, it does seem like, you know, finally that the uh, Carrie Lam can justify, oh, see, this is emergency. We all understand backfiring is a very common mechanism in protest. So I just have a hard time thinking that Beijing and Carrie Lam didn't know. Yeah. And then at the same time, how this is going to end. So going back to the question is if how this is going to end. So from Beijing's perspective, they probably want to have real emergency and then they can have a total crackdown on the protest. There's a lot of talk that, for example, the upcoming district council elections and a lot because of the anti-extradition protest, this widespread expectation that the current district councils are dominated by pro-Beijing forces. But there's expectation that they are, most of them are going to lose seats. And so then they can use the excuse of emergency, of chaos, of terrorism to cancel the elections. And then another thing is that already we saw in the immediate aftermath of the umbrella movement that there was this white terror campaign. And this time we've already seen it that Cathay Pacific, for example, just changed the management altogether. And then mm -hmm. a lot of the flight attendants and ground crew, they were told, you know, is this your Facebook, is this your social media, Facebook account? If it is, if you have said something like, go Hong Kong, um, then these people got fired for no particular reason. So people are very worried about this white terror. This is also why that protesters, they know what they're doing. They know that, you know, whatever they, if they keep um, escalating, that they're, they're going to be subject to even more brutal repression and also more very harsh sentences. Rioting when convicted uh, can get you 10 years in jail. But repeatedly, many people, even very moderates and even the pro-Beijing forces have been also saying that it's really important to have independent investigation into police abuses. The um, pro-Beijing forces, they always say, well, let's also investigate protesters. I think it is fair if, because, as we said, when protesters are, sh uh, are hurt or, or, or shot in the eye, or even first aiders are shot in the eye and journalists, Indonesian journalists, was shot in the eye, nothing ever happens. No one is, is held accountable. 
And when when a police officer is attacked, you see the arrest almost immediately. And every time it's been like this. And so for a lot of people, the, the minimum thing that they really want to see is for Hong Kong to restore to restore to normality in the sense that they can walk out in the street without having to worry about the, um, the, the losing freedom from fear, that they don't have to worry, no longer have to worry about being beaten by police when they are arrested in the detention center, that actually there's justice. They, they, they don't really come out with broken bones. Um, so this is the most important thing that to have independence investigation into what's been going on. So as you know, you know, you're based in the United States and, and the issue of Hong Kong has, especially since Congress came back after its summer recess, has really picked up in terms of awareness. And then obviously we had the issue last week of this kerfuffle over the NBA and a tweet by the general manager of the Houston Rockets, which has really brought the issue of Hong Kong into the mainstream and especially the influence of the Communist Party of China over speech about so-called sensitive political topics, even here in the United States. What I wanted to ask you about was uh, two specific things, and they're both about U.S. political involvement in the events of Hong Kong. Most recently, we just had visits by uh, Senator Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley to Hong Kong. Both made very visible uh, and confrontational remarks uh, against the Chinese government. Uh, Ted Cruz likened the Hong Kong government's reaction to, you know, imposing dictatorship, and and Josh Hawley uh, talked about Hong Kong as if it was a police state. In the case of the latter, I know Carrie Lam came out and and slammed Senator Hawley's statements as as being ridiculous. We saw that uh, along with Ted Cruz's visit, there were an outpouring of protesters waving American flags. I want to get your reaction on how you make sense of those events and if this visible presence of U.S. politicians is helpful. As you know, one of the the narratives that's been swirling around this, it's certainly been the, the Beijing narrative, is that all of this is, uh, the protests in Hong Kong are the work of you know, shadowy U.S.-backed organizations, the CIA, National Endowment for Democracy. And I saw some Weibo accounts in, in mainland China were pointing to the visit of Ted Cruz as as confirmation of this. I want to just get your assessment on what you think the impact of the, the visit by Hawley and Cruz is. Do you think those are helpful or hurtful to uh, the, the protesters? I think that the most important thing is that, again, in Hong Kong, a lot of moderates and a lot of the people in the pro-democracy camp are getting very worried about the escalated violence on the protesters' side, even though it's very often that there have been scenes of violence that we don't really know who those uh, black-clad people are, if they're really protesters or agents provocateurs. But what both Ted Cruz and Joshua Holliday said, and it was basically just very prominently reported in the Apple Daily, Hong Kong's really only pro-democracy print newspaper, is that they come and they support Hong Kong, but at the same time that they really urge protesters to return to nonviolent means. And I would say that, you know, if it is me telling protesters that violence is going to backfire, it's not going to work, they don't buy it. But coming from two senators in Hong Kong, people also have been lobbying for the U.S. to pass the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. Coming from these senators, actually, I think that it has an impact. 
and in a way that I'm, I was very thankful that they were doing that because, you know, I've been hearing from different people that they get nervous, um, policymakers and people and congressmen, they get very nervous. But when we say this, I don't think anyone will listen. So it's good that the senators were saying this. And then another thing about intervention is, let us not forget that when the Sino-British Joint Declaration was signed in 1984, it was also filed with the UN. And not just that. So it was it's an international treaty. And not just that. That Deng Xiaoping and other Chinese leaders at the time, they were in the, in the mood of opening up China to the world. They also understood that before the, the joint declaration was promulgated, that there, there were bank runs in Hong Kong. People were panicking. They were very worried. And so they wanted to reassure Hong Kong people as well as international investors that Hong Kong is just going to be absolutely the same. Nothing is going to change except the change of the flag. And it was really in response to all these assurances that the U.S. then enacted the Hong Kong Policy Act in 1992. So now the current Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act is a revision of that. What they can do is that, especially a few things, is that it will call for sanctions for individuals, government officials and police officers who violate human rights in Hong Kong. It would also allow those people who were arrested and convicted, they can still come to the U.S. to study and to travel. And I think that given that we understand the protesters are very worried that if they go home, if they stop, that there's going to be a huge crackdown, total crackdown. And at the same time, we know that Carrie Lam really is not going to back down because I suppose that she doesn't even have the autonomy to back down and to open independence investigation into police abuses. So having these sanctions, the head of a lot of these police officers and civil servants could actually be the best way to get out of this crisis in Hong Kong. You have police officers and if civil servants, especially the senior people in, in, in the executive council, if they pause and think, oh, I have access uh, overseas, my kids studying overseas, then if they were, if they actually pause and think, maybe that actually can really help the situation. I, in a way that I see that that's the only way out. And so I hope that the, the so today, this afternoon, um, the house is going to, to discuss the, the act and we do expect it to be passed by the house. We don't know when the Senate is going to, um, to discuss it, but I hope that, you know, with Ted Cruz and also Joshua Holly and these other people also expressing the support that it will be passed. And I think that really is, the best solution. Well, Professor Hui, I, we, we could go on for, for a long time. I really appreciate you coming on today. I hope we can find another time to, to get you back to look at developments on this incredibly important issue. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 